just uh, keep your Bibles open there at Nehemiah 1 and 2, that's where we're looking tonight. Uh, but just before we start, I've just got to share something with you. Uh, I wasn't going to talk about this, but then uh, at church this morning, a few people were uh, asking me about it. Uh, so you may or may not have been aware that uh, the Synod of the Anglican Church in Sydney was on this week, and it's on again this week coming. Uh, and uh, in the newspapers, our Archbishop, Glenn Davies, was reported saying some things that have caused some people some issues and so forth. My rule of thumb uh, always on these matters is uh, read anything you read in the newspapers or on the ABC with a grain of salt. Uh, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, remain that way and remain innocent and uh, don't worry about it. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, what the Archbishop said was these words, please leave. And uh, they've been uh, interpreters saying, if you disagree in any way with what I say, uh, then get out of our church sort of thing. That's not what he was saying. Uh, what he was talking about was, uh, sadly, in some parts of the Anglican Church in Australia, there are bishops uh, who are uh, wanting to change the doctrine of the church and move away from having the Word of God as the final authority, in particular on the area of same-sex marriage. Uh, and his message to those bishops who, when they were ordained, promised that they would stick to the Word of God, is, uh, hey, if you want to change our church, you should leave rather than mess with our church. Uh, because sadly, what's happened around the world in too many places, in Canada, in America, in uh, New Zealand now, uh, is uh, uh, bishops and others in authority have uh, decided they don't like the Word of God anymore. They've changed. And uh, then, when Christian people have said, we want to stick with the Word of God, they've had to leave their church and leave their buildings and leave everything behind. Uh, and Archbishop Glenn Davies was saying, that's not right. Uh, if you want to change, you should leave, rather than people who are faithful to God's Word be required to leave. So that's what he was talking about, if you're worried in any way by that. The way I look at it is it's a bit like sort of saying, I'm going to come and be the president of a soccer club uh, with the intention of saying, let's make the ball oval-shaped, and let's say you can pick it up with your hands and run with it and score tries instead of goals and, and all that sort of thing. Well, if you want to do that, go and join a rugby league club, is sort of what Glenn Davies, the Archbishop, was saying. What he wasn't saying is that uh, people with different points of view are not welcome to come and hear the gospel in our church. Uh, and so any person is welcome to come and hear the gospel. But even there, we have to remember, uh, the Bible is going to then challenge what we think on things, whether that's human sexuality, our greed or anything... Uh, the Bible is going to challenge what we think. Uh, and so my rule is always anyone is welcome to come to our church, but then we want you to come to know Jesus and bring your life into line with His Word. That's my hope for what our church would be like. Anyway, if you've got other questions about that, if you're worried about it or anything, come and talk to me. I'm happy to talk more about it. But now I want to talk about even more important things like God's Word and Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2. So I'm going to pray for us and we'll get underway. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our Archbishop Glenn Davies. Thank you that he has fearlessly and confidently proclaimed the truth of the gospel, uh, as well as its implications. Uh, and it saddens us that people twist his words uh, and that people uh, respond negatively to them. But we know uh, that you are the one who judges and you judge our thoughts and our words. And so we thank you that he has the courage and strength of character to remain firm in the gospel. Uh, and we pray uh, that anyone who has been unsettled by any of this media coverage uh, might come and hear the good news of Jesus in our churches rather than be turned away from coming and hearing that news. But now we pray uh, that you'll help us to set aside the things that might distract us so that we can concentrate 
on understanding your word for ourselves uh, as well as then applying it to our lives and we pray this in Jesus name amen uh, we don't understand this anymore and uh, many people in this room will probably have no idea what I'm talking about uh, because of Skype and the internet and WhatsApp and all these sort of things but not that long ago if you went overseas uh, and just say you went overseas for six months you would just not talk to anyone back in Australia for that six months uh, because an international phone call cost like $15 a minute or something uh, and so you didn't talk about talk to people you wrote letters uh, that's how you communicated so back in the 80s uh, there was an ad for telecom which is what Telstra was called before it was Telstra uh, and, and the ad was, it had like, you know, really nostalgic music playing uh, and it was about people ringing back to the village in Greece or in Italy or something like that and it was such an amazing thing that they could ring someone back in Greece that everyone in the village would come and get a, gather around the phone just to hear a word from the long lost child off in Australia. There's a, there's a few people over the age of, I won't say what, who are nodding at me and smiling, remembering those ads. Other people saying, I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, if you go even further, you know, think back to when, you know, 100 years ago or something, uh, news would take six months to come from the other side of the world. So people would wait at the docks in Sydney to get a newspaper from England so they could hear six months old news. It's now out of, it was probably out of date, you know, by the time they got it. As I say, we don't get this anymore. Your mobile phone plan probably has free international calls, for all I know. You, you know, I think the, way that, the reason they do that is most of us don't know anyone to ring internationally, so it's pretty cheap for them. But uh, once a month, I even get on my phone on WhatsApp and I talk to the McDowells in Paraguay, you know, out in country, rural Paraguay, and there is Samuel and Kate on my phone staring at me. That, that is a miracle. It's incredible. But... That is a world away from the world of Nehemiah. Uh, for Nehemiah, uh, he was thousands of kilometres away from where his people were meant to be. So I've got a map to show you on here. Uh, and I think I've just, I get this wrong. Which side is, uh, is Susa on? That's, there you go. It's on that side. There you go. I'm looking at that screen, not that screen. So Nehemiah, who is Nehemiah? Uh, he was a Jew. Uh, but he was a Jew who in all likelihood had never seen Jerusalem. He, he'd never seen the Promised Land because he had been born in captivity in Babylon. Uh, and so in all likelihood, he'd never seen the Promised Land, but his family and his people would have talked about it all the time. And they would have talked about God's promises to them, how, how God had promised he would take his people back to Jerusalem, back to the Promised Land, and there they would be his people again and, and he would be their God uh, how God would restore them and forgive them. And the fulfilment of God's promises had started to happen. So if you remember, this book of Nehemiah goes with Ezra that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. Uh, and we saw the start of the story in the book of Ezra. In fact, earlier than the book of Ezra. So if you look at the timeline up on the screen, uh, on one end of the timeline, the opposite side, that side, yes. Uh, in 597 BC, Judah, the last part of the nation of Israel, had been basically taken over by the Babylonians and in 586 BC they'd been wiped out once and for all, the temple destroyed and they had been taken off into captivity in Babylon, thousands of kilometres away. Uh, but then, after 70 years, the Babylonians had lost their kingdom, the Persians had taken over, a new King Cyrus came along and he allowed them to go back to the Promised Land. So we read about that in Ezra chapters 1 to 6, where if you remember Zerubbabel 
led them back. They rebuilt the temple. That all happened in about 538 BC. Uh, and then we saw in Ezra 7 to 10, how 78 years later again, in 458 BC, under a new king now, Artaxerxes, Ezra the priest went back to Israel. He went back to Jerusalem. You, you got to understand how important Ezra was. He was like the new Moses. Because what he did was he took the word of God back to the people there in the promised land. And, and, and they were like the new people of God, restored. So he re-established not just the temple, but, but the people as the nation of God's people in the promised land. But now in Nehemiah chapter 1, it's 12 years further on. So we're in 446 BC now. And this man, Nehemiah, is an important official in the court of Artaxerxes. And he's miles away from Jerusalem. He's even further. He's over in that place, Susa, which is even further away. Uh, and Nehemiah gets a message from home. He gets a message from Jerusalem and it's not good. So come with me to verse 1. It says, this is the words of Nehemiah. And then verse 2, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. This is the worst message he could have got. It's touch and go whether they're going to survive, they're in a mess, they're unprotected. Even after all Zerubbabel's efforts, even after all Ezra's efforts, things are not looking good. But the thing is, Nehemiah is not just some nobody who gets this message. He's not some random person. He has connections. He might actually be able to do something about this. So if you jump down to verse 11, right at the end, it's just got this little sort of throwaway line. You see there, it tells us, at this time, I was the king's cupbearer. And we might think that's like a, a, a glorified butler. He's not very important. Uh, but he was the man who brought the king's wine and tasted it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Because a very popular way of getting rid of kings in the ancient world was poisoning them. So it's actually a really trusted person. He's actually very close to the king. They probably drank a lot of wine in those days, those kings. Uh, so he was always around the king. He had the, the presence of the king. Uh, he's a key person. So he might be able to do something about this. That's what we're meant to be asking. Is he going to do something? But it's interesting what Nehemiah does when he gets the awful news. It's interesting to see. Because in this book, as we look together, we're going to see Nehemiah is a man of action. He's not the sort of guy who sits on his hands. Uh, he gets stuff done. And he's very smart too. We're going to see how he's a tricky sort of politician type sort of guy. He knows how to get his way. But what does this shrewd man of action do first when he hears this news? Look at verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, the first thing he does is pray. And that's the thing, isn't it? If we really believe that God is in control, if we really believe that, that, that God is all-knowing and, and all-powerful, and especially if we really believe the promises of God, if we believe that God is always working for our eternal good, then isn't prayer the most important thing we do? How often, though, for me anyway, does prayer get crowded out by urgent other things? Because I want to do something, and prayer seems like I'm not doing anything, so I'd rather do than pray. No, Nehemiah says, pray first, act later. Because God is more powerful than we will ever be. There's a great title of a book, 
Uh, sadly, I don't think the book itself was much good, but I always remember the title, so don't go and read this book. Uh, but the title of the book was Too Busy Not to Pray. Do you remember that book? Too Busy Not to Pray. Uh, as I say, I don't think the book was that helpful, but the title is wonderful because it's true. But more than that, uh, Nehemiah's prayer is actually one of the great models of how to pray. Uh, I often talk to Christians, and they want to pray, but they say, I, I don't really know how. So I, so I pray, but it's only ever for 30 seconds, and then I sort of get distracted, and I, I run out of, of things to, to talk about, or I forget what I'm doing. If you want to learn how to pray, you do a lot worse than follow Nehemiah's model. There's an old acronym of how we should pray, uh, and it's this one, ACTS, A-C-T-S, you've probably heard me say it before, where adoration, first of all, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, that's just a fancy word starting with S to make the thing work for, for asking God stuff, that's what that means. It's a great model and Nehemiah's prayer is almost exactly that model. So I've ripped it off to use for Nehemiah's prayer and changed one of them in a very forced way to make it suit the letters, so you'll see that in a second. But have a look at his prayer because the first thing he does is he starts with adoration. So look from verse 5, I said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands. So Nehemiah knows that God does not owe us anything. Nehemiah knows God isn't some vending machine who, who you approach lightly with your, your list of demands, expecting Him to just sort of do whatever you ask. God is awesome in the true sense of that word. God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, God is beyond our comprehension in many ways, God is awe-inspiring and so that's where Nehemiah begins. He's not buttering God up, he's not like, you know, sort of just sort of pretending to praise God, to get God on side, God doesn't need that sort of nonsense, he's just rightly recognising and giving God the glory he deserves and that's how we should approach God. When we pray, we should give God the praise, we should give God the glory, we should recognise you are God and we are not, you are wonderful and we are not and that's why prayer naturally flows from reading God's Word. If you struggle to pray, what you should do is read God's Word and then praise God for the things you learn about Him in His Word. See, as we learn more about God, we praise Him for it. But that flows into the next part of His prayer, which is confession. So look at verse 6, it says, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. It's really powerful, I think, this part of the prayer. He's saying, God, I don't presume that I deserve your attention. I, I don't presume that I deserve your grace. You, you don't owe me anything. I'm a sinner. The state my people are in, the state that Jerusalem in, is it's not your fault, God, it's our fault. And so I'm sorry for the way, not just me, but my people have treated you. And again, that is how we should approach God as well. Christian prayer is always humble and Christian prayer is always repentant. Christian prayer confesses our sin to God and admits that we need His forgiveness, admits that we don't deserve anything from Him. In the old prayer book, uh, the prayer that used to be prayed was, 
God, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. Sort of poetic language, but it captures it perfectly, I think. That is how we should approach God. We should be saying, God, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. So we have adoration. We praise God for who he is. We declare his wonder and glory, followed by confession, uh, admitting to God just how far short we fall, naming our sins and saying sorry for them. Normally, thanksgiving is the next part of the, the, the acronym, but for Nehemiah's prayer, it's slightly different. And as I said, I've had, had to slightly stretch it to get a T. So I've made it taking a hold of God's promises. So look from verse 8. It says, Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. So he's saying, Yes, God, I know you promised judgment for unfaithfulness, but now the judgment has happened. Look from verse 9. He says, but if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. So what Nehemiah does is he says, God, I want you to fulfill that promise you made. You promised us that if we turned back to you, you would bring us back from right around the world, you would restore your people. See, Nehemiah doesn't just approach God with his shopping list of prayers. He's not asking God for any old random thing. He's asking God to do what you promised you would do. Forgive us and restore us. And again, bring it forward to us. When we pray, we never end with the confession of sin, do we? We never just say, God, I am sorry for all the ways I have let you down. We then say, but thank you that you have forgiven me in Christ Jesus. So we don't just confess our sin, we then take a hold of the wonderful promise of forgiveness in Christ. We say, Father, I've sinned in so many ways, but thank you that you love me enough to send your son to die for me. Thank you for forgiving me, even though I don't deserve it. We take a hold of the wonderful promises of God. Now, of course, we can ask God for anything. That's the wonder of prayer. Have a look at what Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 6. He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, we can ask God for anything, but more than anything, we should ask God for the things He has promised us. So I'll give you an example of what that looks like. When we are going through a time of suffering or, or, or a time of trial, we can pray that God would relieve that suffering. That is a good and right thing to pray. We can pray, God, please take this trial away from me. Uh, please help me get out of this situation, whatever it is. We can pray that, but then we must pray that God would strengthen us to persevere in our faith through the suffering. Because that is what He promises us. See, He doesn't promise us that He will deliver us from every moment of suffering we face from every trial we face, but He does promise us that He will strengthen us so we can persevere through it. That's why Christian prayer always follows Jesus' example. Somewhat sort of ironically, outside the walls, just outside the walls that Nehemiah built was the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where Jesus prayed the prayer that I'm sure you know well. And what did Jesus say? As He asked God, please don't, is there another way is there something other than me dying on the cross to pay, for the price, to pay the price for the sin of the whole world? And then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. 
That is godly prayer. Ask God for anything, but always trust that He knows that what is best. Which brings us to the last part of it, which is supplication. That is Nehemiah's actual request. Because here's the thing, Nehemiah doesn't just ask God vaguely to fulfill his promises. Now Nehemiah says, I've got some really specific things I want you to do, God. So look from verse 11. He says, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. Now, what's he praying for there? This is the first hint we get of what Nehemiah is going to go and do. He's actually going to go in and ask King Artaxerxes for help. Now, that is a massive thing to do. You've all seen movies with ancient kings in them and you've seen how people walk in and then they don't turn around, they, they walk backwards bowing or otherwise they get their head chopped off. That, that is true. That's what the ancient world was like. Ancient kings didn't appreciate their servants talking to them, no matter how important the servant was. Ancient kings didn't appreciate their servants giving them political advice. So Nehemiah knows, if I'm going to do this, it's just as likely I'm going to die at the end of it as be successful. It's just as likely I'll be thrown into jail as be successful. So he prays, God, give me success in this conversation and have compassion on me. That is, please don't let this go badly for me. And that's the four parts of his prayer, which as I say, is a great model for us. Adoration, he praises God. Confession, he admits his sin. He takes a hold of God's promises but then supplication, he actually asks God to do, to help him do what he's got to do. There's one last point about prayer, though, that this chapter makes, and it really leads us into chapter 2. I think this is really, really important. Sometimes people make prayer and action sort of opposites of one another. So sometimes Christians say, I'm just going to hand this over to God. Or, or you've heard me say it before, let go and let God. You've heard my thoughts on that in the past. Uh, now, there is a rightness to that sometimes, because sometimes we are totally powerless. So, you, you know, a storm is coming that's going to wipe out houses. It, you just pray, God, please make this storm not damage too much. You, you know, you're just sort of crying out in hope. You've got, you're powerless in it. We say, God, please just help us. But often that is not the case. And it's not the case here for Nehemiah. So even as he prays, Nehemiah doesn't pray, God, do something about it, now I'm going to lock myself in the room. Nehemiah prays, God, I know you'll probably answer this through me, through my efforts. So there's no let go and let God with Nehemiah. He doesn't just pray and ask God to do something and then sit back. He says, God, please work and do that by helping me do what I've got to do. And I think this is so true for us, isn't it? You see, when we pray for God's help to be godly, for God's help to put off sin in our life, we don't then say, well, now I'll go down to the pub and have a few drinks and see what God does about it. We say, no, 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 I've prayed for God's help to be godly, now I will make every effort to be godly. And my prayer is that God will strengthen me to do that. When we pray that someone would come to know Jesus, we don't then say, now I hope someone else tells them. The probable way God will answer the prayer for the person you're in contact with is He'll give you the opportunity and He'll give you the courage to share the gospel. When we walk past a person in need, I think it's a terrible thing to just pray for them and walk on by. 
and say, gee, I hope God answers that prayer. Surely you help them. You give them a meal. You give them a bed. You give them a cloak. Because that's how God is answering that prayer. I could go on and on. I think this is why our world is so often cynical of Christian politicians who say, I'll pray about that. So you've heard it recently, haven't you, where Scott Morrison has said that he'll pray for the drought. That is a wonderful thing. I am so glad we have a Christian Prime Minister who thinks prayer is important and prays. But I understand the cynicism of our world if that's all he's going to do about it. Because he's the Prime Minister. And so I think rightly people say, yes, pray, but God's answer might be for you to come up with policies for how to help our farmers. So pray and act. The point is sometimes God does act to answer our prayers totally separately from our involvement, and that is wonderful, but He often acts by strengthening us, and He often acts by equipping us, and He often acts by giving us the opportunity to serve Him. So Nehemiah teaches us it's not pray or do, it's pray and do, pray and act. Well, very briefly now, we'll flick through chapter 2 just to finish. You might want to go and read it later to see the full story. Uh, but look there now, go to chapter 2, in verses 1 to 8, God gives Nehemiah the strength to make his request to the king. He puts on, the way he does it is wonderful, he puts on such a sad face that eventually the king gets sick of it and says, what's wrong, Nehemiah, tell me. You know, it's a great way, do that with your parents or, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and there's a great moment in verse 4 where Nehemiah says, he sort of shoots off a prayer to God, even as he's having the conversation with the king, he just says, God, please help me, which is just a great reminder that while we want to be regular and, and, and pray daily uh, and be focused in our prayer, that some of, we can pray to God at any moment, at any time. There's a great Colin Buchanan kids song we used to sing uh, in some of our morning congregations about shooting off an arrow prayer. Does everyone remember that song in Sunday school? Uh, and it's so true, isn't it? Sometimes our prayer is just, God, please help me now. And that's what he does there. And here God answers his prayer, the king allows him to go back to Jerusalem, but as so often ha happens, God answers his prayer above and beyond our expectations. Uh, God is even more gracious, the king actually gives him letters of authority to give him all the materials he will need to do this, he won't even have to pay for it. Uh, and there's a wonderful summary at the end of verse 8, look there, it says, the king granted my requests, for I was graciously strengthened by my God. I love that prayer, or I love that, that statement about prayer, because it captures how God works in the world. You see how it works? See, the king did it. So in some ways, thanks Artaxerxes for being so generous. But he did it because God worked through me, my efforts. But even there, in the end, God was in control of it all. And that's how we understand the world. We are responsible for how we act, but God is in control of it all. Then in verses 9 to 20, come with me now, the last part, when Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, he rallies all the people to rebuild the walls and the gates, but there are lots of other people there who worship other gods and they're not fans of Nehemiah, they try to stop him, they mock him, they challenge him. So look down at verse 19, it says, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and says, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, I love this because Nehemiah could have just pulled out his letters from King Artaxerxes and said, who's rebelling against the king now, guys? He could have just done it, he could have just trumped them, but he doesn't. Instead, look at verse 20, I gave them this reply, the God of heaven 
is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right or historic claim in Jerusalem. He says to them, God is going to make this happen, get with the program. Either get with us or you will have no share in what God is doing. It's a way of saying you will have no place in God's kingdom. Now, as I close, I want to again bring that forward to us as New Testament people and make one last comment. Uh, God's work in the world is not now building an earthly Jerusalem. That is not God's plan for the world now. God has revealed himself once and for all in Jesus and now God's kingdom is being built by people hearing about Jesus and trusting in him. That's how God is at work in the world now. And just like people mocked Nehemiah for doing God's work back then, there will always be people like Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, people who mock and despise God's people. People who mock what God is doing in the world. People who belittle the Christian gospel. That's what I was talking about before. Don't be surprised when people mock you as a Christian. Don't be surprised when people mock Christians who want to share the gospel with other people. They've been doing it at, to the time of Nehemiah, they did it to Jesus, they did it to the Apostle Paul and they'll be doing it for as long as until Christ returns. But our response is not to close the door to the sandbalats of this world. Wonderfully, a place in God's kingdom is open to anyone from every nation, tribe and tongue. See, with the coming of Jesus, the doors are open. We don't want people to be like Geshem the Arab or Tobiah the whatever he was. We don't want people to have no share in God's kingdom. But the way they are included is as we share the gospel with them. See, this is why we preach Jesus. This is why that is our number one thing. We share Jesus with all people. We invite all people to come and worship Jesus because we do not want people to be locked outside the heavenly Jerusalem. Even people who mock the gospel need to hear about Jesus so that they can find the salvation we have found. That's my prayer for us as a church, that we will understand how God is at work in the world and we will want all people to join us in worshipping Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message from Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2 and in particular we thank you for the wonderful gift of prayer. We pray that we will be people who pray first because we recognise that you are in control and help us to be people who, who follow the model of Nehemiah, who give you the praise you deserve, who approach you with humility, confessing our sin, but also who take a hold of the promises you have given us. And in that light, Father, help us to bring before you all our requests, but always seeking after your will more than our own. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.